A favorite movie of mine is one that came out in the past few years. It's called 1917. It's a war movie. And it follows the journeys of a young British soldier in the Great War. This young soldier is selected by his general to deliver a message miles away. If he doesn't get there in time, the army will fall into a trap and thousands will die. That first young soldier then goes and picks a second friend to go with him on this journey to deliver the message. Very in, early into the journey, they run over a wire that trips an explosion, and the second friend nearly dies. But after barely escaping, the two soldiers then have this exchange. The second friend who nearly dies says, I wish you didn't pick me. The first responds, I didn't know what I was picking you for. No, you didn't. You never know. That's your problem. The first one says, all right, then go back. Nothing's stopping you. I don't know what I was picking you for. I thought they were going to send us back up the line or for food or something. I thought it was going to be something easy, all right? I never thought it was this. And then after a pause and a concerned look, the first soldier turns to his friend and asks, so do you want to go back? There are many circumstances in our lives and in the life of a church where the thought comes into the mind, maybe I should go back. The Hebrew Christians who first received this letter were going through their own crisis of faith where they were probably thinking the same thing. Maybe I should go back. There was severe persecution that made them wonder, should we go back to Judaism? Should we go back to the practices of the old covenant rather than following Jesus in the new covenant? Should we go back where it would be easier, where we would be accepted by our community, and we wouldn't be excluded and ostracized? But to the writer of Hebrews, going back was unthinkable. The writer of Hebrews was likely a pastor in their congregation at some point, but who, for whatever reason, couldn't be with them at this time, so he wrote this letter to send to them. Chapter 1 to 9, he writes in a very convincing way to prove to them that the old way in the old covenant of Judaism had been fulfilled in the new way and the new covenant of Jesus, so much so that the old covenant was brought to nothing. How could they go back? Then he reaches chapter 10. And knowing, this, knowing the severe persecution they were going through and the serious questions they were asking, in light of all of the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done, he finally reaches this point of, okay, so what do we do now? Can this despair be turned into hope? Can this weariness become perseverance? Can this exhaustion be swallowed up with endurance? What do we do now? His answer, stay devoted together. And I think this is a word that our church needs now and each week and month in this season and years that follow. When life brings us to a place 
or to our church to a place where we feel like we can't go any further and it would be easier to go back, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, admonishes us here and now where the line is drawn in the stand to decide to stay devoted together. This passage is first going to show us why and then it's going to show us how. Two reasons why we should stay devoted together. Here's the first one. Stay devoted together because we have confident access together before the presence of God. Look at verse 19 and verse 20 with me. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. The first reason we should stay devoted together is because we have confidence. Confident access before the presence of God. Do you know how vital and how beautiful it is to have access to the presence of God? The presence of God dwelling with the people of God is the defining feature of what it means for the people of God to be the people of God. The presence of God with the people of God was what was lost at the beginning because of the curse of sin. The presence of God with the people of God is what will be restored in full at the end when Jesus Christ comes back. And while we wait for his return, God has mercifully provided a way for you to be able to enjoy his presence now in part. In the old covenant, God's presence was accessed through the system under the law of Moses, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple. But in the new covenant through Jesus, God has opened, as verse 20 says, a new and living way for us to access his presence. Now, in the old covenant, in order to be able to access God's presence, you needed to be found pure, justified. So sacrifices of animals were offered day after day after day. But it could never fully take away sins. And priests were the ones who administered those sacrifices. But priests, generation after generation after generation, were changed. In the new covenant, Christ has inaugurated something better. By the sacrifice of his own blood and his own flesh, you were purified once and for all. Jesus, as a priest, is everlasting and has an incorruptible life. So he stands always ready to advocate for you to have this access into God's presence. This is the new way that we have to access the presence of God. And it is this access that is the distinguishing feature that makes the people of God the people of God. This is a new way. This is a living way. It's living in as much as access to God is life-giving. Trusting Jesus as our final and full sacrifice 
for the pardon of our sin and for the cleansing of our shame is life-giving. James read the verse at the beginning of our service, Psalm 65. Blessed is the one who you choose and draw near. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, with the holiness of your temple. Do you see the gathering of the saints and our access to Father as a soul-satisfying, life-giving wellspring that is greater than any other thing you can have? It is. And do you know really where we, we go when we have this access? When we're going to the presence of God, do you know where we're going? We're not going to some room in some building halfway across the world in Jerusalem. This was the first access that was given in the Old Covenant. Now look at the text with me in verse 20. It says, By the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, the writer here is referring likely to the veil, to the big tapestry that separated the holy place in the temple from the holy of holy places. The holy of holy places is that one geographical location in the old covenant where the presence of God manifested with the people of God. Only one person could go into that sacred place, the high priest. He could only go in once a year. This curtain represented something that was beautiful inside, but something that was inaccessible. But Christ has opened up this new and living way for all who have put their faith in him. But we're, again, we're not going to some room halfway into the, across the world. So then where are we going now? Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places. I want to show you another passage in Scripture that really reveals to us what exactly the kind of access we have to the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Listen to this. It says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. Christ has entered into heaven so that before the Father, based on his sacrifice, to those who believe in him are advocated for that we are forgiven and that we are justified. And if you've believed in Jesus, you have this same access to this same place before the presence of God in heaven here and now, this was what was lost at the beginning because of sin. This is what is longed for that would be returned in the end when Christ has made all things new. This is the soul-satisfying, life-giving, and you have confidence to access it. By the offering of the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus' flesh, we can confidently enter before the presence of God in heaven. And there, Christian, you can know that you will be accepted by the Father and that you will be affirmed by the Father. Do you want to be known by the one who knows you fully and loves you still? Believe that Jesus suffered in your place for your sins. Believe in his name and what he's done. 
And Christ then, on that faith, will stand before the Father, advocating for you, and you have a place there before him. Now, there are a lot of things that can hinder us from enjoying this access. Trials may harden you to God. Shame may turn you from God. Despair may hold you back from God. But for everyone in Christ, your access will never be revoked, never be diminished, and will always be open. This soul-satisfying, life-giving presence of God is what is the defining feature of what it means for the people of God to be the people of God. And when trials come, it feels like we want to pull back from that. But this is the great treasure that Christ has won for you. Emmanuel, God with us. So church, for this reason, because we have this access, even amongst the many trials that we face, stay devoted together. We have confident access before God. Here's the second reason that we need to stay devoted together. We have a great high priest over us. Look at the chapter, the passage again, verse 19 to verse 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, we need to stay devoted together because we have a great high priest over this house. What do the responsibilities for chores look like at your house? Who does what to make sure that everything stays in order and on time and everything's not in chaos? Me and Jandy, I think we have a good system now that works for the most part. Uh, we normally share duties when it comes to cooking. There are some things that she does really well, but she's willing to admit that there are some things that I'm willing to do better, I can do better than her. But on the other hand, when it comes to cleaning, there are some things I kind of do well, but there are most things that I need to take her example from, and she does way better than me. We're starting to develop responsibilities and chores for our kids, but they're still pretty little. They need to make sure that they always take their plates to the counter after dinner, they need to clean their toys up in the living space, and they need to clean up the room at the end of the night. But me and my wife, we're the ones who are responsible to figure out who has those responsibilities so that because we are over our house, we assign the duties to make sure everything works in an orderly manner in our house. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, the church is called the house of God. And Christ here is said to be the one who is over the house, which means that Jesus has the authority to keep in good order all the things that happen within the church. And he has that authority of, uh, over us to keep everything in good order as a high priest. As a high priest, he advocates on our behalf before God. He advocates for us on the basis of the sacrifice that he has made. He advocates for us on his eternal priesthood. Christ's priesthood over us is good news, church. Because Jesus is over us, and because he is for us, 
even when things seem out of order, we can draw near to him. And he can give us the help that we need through any and every circumstance. Do you believe that Christ is like that for your life? Do you see Christ's authority over you and for you so that when things are disordered, you can turn to him and he will help? I think one of the reasons we fail to draw near and fail to enjoy the access we have before God is because we don't trust that when push comes to shove, he'll be who he's promised to be. I want to show you from Hebrews who you can bank Christ to be. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 to 16. For we do not have a, do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7 now, verse 23 to 25. It says, For the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always makes, lives to make intercession for them. Christ sympathizes for your weaknesses. Do you believe that? Do you know how you are weak? and how you're kept from drawing near and enjoying God's presence. How do you feel guilt and shame in ways that it seems like your dignity is being hollowed out? Do you trust that Christ sees that, cares for that, and is ready for open arms to receive you when you come to him for help in that. Let us with confidence draw near that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 7 says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, the uttermost, for all of time and to any extent. He is able to save absolutely when you draw near to Christ and you cast your burdens on him he's got broad shoulders he can take it how is he able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for you why does Christ live now to make intercession for you why do we wait to draw near to the one who is over us and for us? You can stay devoted together. We can stay devoted together because of the one who advocates before us 
for the Father. Because he stands at the Father's right hand, we always have this access to this life-giving, soul-satisfying presence that distinguishes the people of God as the people of God. But we cannot have this confidence. We will not have this assurance. You will always be filled with doubt and weariness and fear if you don't go to him. If we don't go to him. Stay devoted together. His devotion for you is unfading, unfailing. You have access that is never revoked. A high priest that is there for you when you need it. One of the problems with the Hebrew churches is that when all this came up, they started to isolate. They started to pull back and pull in. We can't be devoted if we are not devoted together. In 2019, for the first time, a runner ran a full marathon in under two hours. It was an achievement that a lot of people thought was completely impossible. It was done under unique circumstances, so it doesn't technically count towards the world record, but it really is still a great achievement. In order to be able to race, uh, do a marathon in under two hours, uh, the athlete needed to be able to run at an incredible pace of about two minutes and 50 seconds per kilometer. That's ridiculous. But in order to maintain a high speed for so long, he needed a team of other professional runners. I think it was about seven at any given time. Four, five who were in this like flying V-shape ahead of him to draft, and two who were side by side with him. And those seven people set the pace so that he could run the race. There was no way that he would have been able to reach that mile at uh, that time if he tried to run it alone. Christians, we have irrevocable access into the presence of God in heaven. We have a high priest who is over us, who is for us, who will never leave us or forsake us. But we are also tempted through evil and unbelieving hearts to draw in and to draw back. We must stay devoted together. The reasons have been outlined already. So now, how do we actually do this? In these days ahead, what must we decide to commit to so we can endure and stay devoted together? Three ways to stay devoted together. The first in verse, is in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Church, we will stay devoted together when we draw near in faith together. We have this access to the presence of God. We can draw near, so are we? Now, this is a command, this is an appeal, not just to us individually, for your own personal times of fellowship in the, the prayer closet. This is a command to corporate fellowship, to draw near together. And we're told to draw near with a true heart. We're told to draw near with full assurance. 
A true heart is a heart that when we draw near, our heart is devoted to God and God alone. And a heart that has full assurance and faith has the confidence that when I come near, I will be accepted. We will be accepted. And the way we are able to draw near in this way, true heart, full assurance, is, as it says, when we are cleansed from an evil conscience. The conscience is a unique thing. Our conscience is like a moral compass that God has given to all of humanity. Now, the conscience, to be able to understand right from wrong and then to be able to act on it, the conscience can on one hand be good, it can be pure, it can be clean. Or, on the other hand, when sin gets a hold of it, the conscience uh, can be defiled, it can be seared and numb, it can be evil. And there are many things in our lives that cause us to be able to feel this way rather than that. But when the conscience is bad, through our own sin, through other people's sin against us, through the frustrations of everything that's happening in the world, we can lack that full assurance to draw near. We can be uncertain if God's going to really accept us. But the way that we can be purified to have a good conscience, a pure conscience, a clear conscience, it says, it uses this interesting language. Look at verse 22. It says that we have our hearts sprinkled clean, our bodies washed with pure water. What is, what is this referring to? This is a likely a reference to baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Scripture says that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So Christian, when you were baptized and you stood before a congregation and you read your testimony, you were submerged fully into the water and then brought back out of it, that one act before God in front of a congregation, that act then stands as a witness, as a testimony to your identity in Christ, washed, sprinkled clean. So that even now, as you live your days beyond your baptism, and you still fall into that same sin that you struggle with, and you still, your mind still races on those same worries and those same fears that seems like they won't go away, and you still feel like there are so many things that pull you away from God, your baptism stands as a witness a banner, a testimony of who you truly are in Christ. And remembering that you've been immersed in Christ and have new life in Christ is an appeal before God that you can have a clean conscience. Not because you're perfect anymore. Not because you are righteous before God. But because Christ appeals before God on your behalf. And because you are found in him. Because of what Christ has done, witnessed by our new identity through baptism, we can, with true hearts and full assurance of faith, draw near. Okay, so then, what does it actually mean to draw near? What is the Bible actually telling me to do? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 helps clarify this, I think. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists 
and that he rewards those who seek him. I think drawing near is synonymous with seeking God. So just think in your own mind, how do I draw near? And at his most fundamental basic level, drawing near to God means seeking him in earnest prayer. And this is not just an appeal to individuals, this is an appeal to the church. We can stay devoted by drawing near to God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, how often do you talk with God? How often do you talk with God individually, you and God in the quiet of your own heart? How often do you talk to God with other Christians? Rather than even just talking about God. 13 years ago, when I think social media was still in its infancy, John Piper tweeted this. One of the greatest uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove on the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. And that's way before TikTok came onto the scene. What hinders you most from prayer? What hinders you most from fellowship with other Christians who pray? I think for many of us, it's actually our insecurities. We fear coming to God because we don't know if we'll be accepted by God. We don't have a pure conscience. Christian, have you been baptized? Do you believe in him? Christ knows you're a sinner. He saved you in your sin. And even as a sinner, you have been purified and have irrevocable access and are advocated for by a high priest who knows your weaknesses. Draw near. True heart. Full assurance. Get with other Christians and don't just talk about God, but talk to God. You, there is a peace and a joy that you cannot comprehend until you actually do it. C.S. Lewis talked about this in The Weight of Glory. It's like a child playing in mud puddles thinking that this is the best thing when he doesn't even know what it means to be able to have a vacation on the beach. Draw near in faith. Do you know how much God values prayer? In Revelation 8 verse 4, 56, prayer is described as fragrant incense in a golden bowl lifted before the presence of God. How often do we treat prayer more like the scraps that go in our green bin, the leftovers? Fragrant. This is God is pleased. It is an aroma. He wants to hear you pray. He wants to hear it from us. We will stay devoted together when we draw near in faith, praying. Closely linked with faith is hope. Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The second way that we can stay devoted together is when we hold fast in hope. Church, are you holding fast today or are you wavering? 
Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast the confession of our hope. A confession is an agreement. When I confess Jesus Christ as Lord, I agree that I see Jesus the way who God revealed Jesus to be. When I confess my sin, I agree that I see my sin the way that God sees my sin. When I confess my hope, I might see brokenness and disorder all around me, but I agree that God has promised to make things better, and he will, even though I don't know how or when. And we are told to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Uh, I, if I ever played poker, I would be the worst guy at the table, unquestionably. I am an extrovert. I am an external processor. I wear every single thought and emotions on my sleeve. I can be read like a children's book by anybody. It's really easy for my wife, probably for our staff, and for you, for my small group. People know when I'm wavering. And I can waver in hope. But I'm thankful that my ability to hold fast to hope without wavering isn't based on my willpower or my emotional resilience. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. How? Why? For he who promised is faithful. You may waver too like I, but the confidence we have to hold fast to hope without wavering it's not based on us, but it's based on God. I wish that there was a lot more stability in life. I wish there was more stability in my own life. I wish there was more stability in church. But in his mercy, the great high priest who is over our house has decided, probably since around the first lockdown in 2019, that stability isn't the thing he wants for his house. Change is hard. Our great priest over this house has decided that what he believes is good for the order of his house is to allow his people to go through change. When circumstances outside our control cause us to waver, we can hold fast without wavering because of the promises that God has made and because he's faithful to keep them. So then, what promises should we be holding fast to? Hold fast to the hope that God is the bridegroom to this church, his bride. Hold fast to the promise that Ephesians 5 says that this, his, the bridegroom will sanctify us. He will wash us. He will make us holy and blameless to be presented before him. Hold fast to the hope that God is our shepherd and we are his sheep. John 10 promises us, assures us, that he knows you by name. That he will call to us. That he will lead us into abundant life. And that no one will snatch us out of their hand. Psalm 23 promises that he will restore our soul. That through valleys of shadows of death, and there will be valleys of shadows of death, but he still will be with us. All the days of our lives. Hold fast to the hope that he who promised is faithful. Stay devoted together. 
draw near in faith, hold fast in hope, and finally, encourage one another in love. Look at verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I could probably have more water in my diet. I usually have like two cups of coffee and then my, uh, in the morning, and then water comes like at lunch or after lunch. And then when I'm thirsty after lunch, she's like, oh, I should have another cup of coffee. She's like, nah, water would probably be better at this time. Water's vital for life. And we have a very intricate system to be able to easily get clean water right out of the tap, but it's not like that for a lot of people in the world. For most people in the world, Fresh water just has to come from nature around you. But water that comes from stagnant, still water can be dangerous. When still water pools together, it can easily become contaminated. Active water, though, active water is clean. The movement prevents bacteria from incubating and from causing contamination. The Hebrew church once had a sterling reputation of love and good works. So much so that it says in chapter 13 that they were joyfully allowed the plundering of their property by other people in persecution. They visited other people in prison. But the pressure of the circumstances had caused the movement of their fellowship to stagnate. And the life they had was seeming to be lost. Who has an eye on the activity of your soul? If you're active or if you're stagnating? Who are you looking into the souls of others and encouraging them, stirring them up to be active in the faith? We need to keep watch on one another if we are going to maintain the love and the good works that God has done through this church. Janie and I have only been a part of Grace Fellowship for 14 months now. I knew a little bit about the church before I came here. Uh, most of the time when a friend would tell me about Grace Fellowship, I would have to ask him, like, which Grace? Is it, is it the one downtown or is it on the east, west end? Okay, the east one, okay. But as I heard about Grace Fellowship Church, Don Mills, there were a couple things that keep propping up that as now I have been here have proven true. And this is a church that knows how to stir one another up to love and good works. This has been a church that has trained pastors and sent them anywhere from across the city to across the continent. This is a church that has a deep love for intimate relationships and for theological study. This is a church that believes firmly in the radical call to missions so that it sends its members and pastors across the world and goes and visits them too. Grace Fellowship, you know how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Stay devoted together. But in hard times, the question can still linger. Do you want to go back? Can I keep going? 
In that movie that I referenced, 1917, after they had their exchange and the one asked the other, do you want to go back? They decided they were going to keep going. Eventually, one lost his life, but the second friend made it to the destination to deliver the message. Just before he arrived at the destination, he stumbled into a forest where he meets uh, more of the soldiers from the army, and they're preparing to enter battle. But just before they enter battle, they're all seated quietly on the ground, except for one soldier who's standing and singing. He's singing an old hymn called, I am a poor, wear-fearing stranger. And the exhausted, disheveled soldier who has traveled so far and lost a friend to death sits down for the first time to rest and listens with the rest of the men to hear these words. I am a poor, wear-fearing stranger traveling through this world below. But there is no sickness, toil, or danger in that bright land to which I go. Christian, in this life, we are but soldiers and we are but strangers. We are and we will face trials of many and various kinds. But the day is coming soon where Christ will take us to be with him forever. As we see that day drawing near, now, today, let's stay devoted together. Let's pray.